I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, go to the dispatch.com to uh, see all our free stuff, sign up for the stuff that's behind uh, the subscriber community uh, thing about Bobby. Um, and um, and also if you if you poke around long enough, you will actually find out the true origin story of Mr. Rourke. And today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Scout and Zoe. Uh, more from the about them in a little bit. Uh, today we have uh, a friend, a former sort of colleague, because I don't think he ever actually worked at National Review, but he was in the family, as it were. He knew the handshakes. Um, and he is actually the person most responsible for uh, me getting really, really angry when people talk about... Uh, uh, the, the, the executive branch being a co-equal branch of Congress, um, which I know is a nerdy thing to brag about, but it's it's one of my weird passions. Uh, Luke Thompson, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to be here, Jonah. Uh, last time we were in a small hot closet in the National Review Studios, uh, and we were, um, if memory serves, I think I was the first person to force you to drink on air while recording. That's right. You brought beer. Yeah. Well, we stole it from the fridge. I, I believe me, I provide nothing as the listeners will soon learn. Um, but, uh, <laughs> this time I am sitting in my small, extremely hot office where my air conditioner doesn't work. So if you hear a loud thump, uh, that's me passing out. Um, yeah. So listeners don't know this, but in the age of COVID, whatever, we've been doing all these things, all, all, you know, by remote and you, we can see each other. So it already looks over there like a scene out of Cool Hand Luke. Yeah, it's it's bad. I've got the raw eggs ready to go too. Um, he did not eat raw eggs. He ate hard boiled eggs. Uh-huh. But, um, so you know, there's that. And there's you know, I I actually uh, watched that movie in an English class once, and there's a remarkable amount of sort of hidden symbolism and interesting things going on hmm. in there. Uh, I. I- I would be fine if more people associated that film with my name than the regrettable space uh, trilogies that have come to be associated with it. Uh, I get a lot of random paternity claims now, people wanting to be or saying that they're my father. And, uh, you know, it's amazing every time somebody says it to me, they're like, bet you've never heard that before. And it's like, not this week. Dude, try to go through life with the name Jonah and find an original joke about whales. <clears throat> um, it's a... It's a it's a it's a cross I have to bear, um, and it's funny. Every now and then you meet people who grew up in sort of nautical or naval households around boats, and it's rare. But every now and then they'll say, "My God, why would your parents name you that?" Because uh, 
Never that Jonah, Jonah is a cursed person. It's bad luck, right? In the in seafaring world. Um, I, I learned that. I learned that from Master and Commander. But yes, yeah. Don't don't ever go sailing with you. It's it's worse than being named Ahab, right? I think so. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, where to begin? I guess for for listeners who don't know what I'm talking about, and we're gonna, and I, I can't tease something so monumental as the co-equal branch thing without getting into it. What for the layman, right? We hear this every single day. Oh, actually, not every day, but like whenever there are interbranch uh, conflicts or an impeachment, which is often these days, um, uh, we hear the phrase co-equal branch, co-equal branch, including from um, members of Congress. You know, I mean, it goes both ways. So what, what is the problem? What is the derivation of the co-equal branch thing? Well, the word co-equal has been in American politics from the beginning. Um, it's a bit of an odd word because why not just say equal? Um, what it basically means is correspondent and of equivalent status. And it was applied previously or primarily to describe the states in relationship to one another. So while they would vary in population, they would be co-equal in dignity, co-equal in status, et cetera. And of course, the Constitution makes it impossible to remove the senatorial representation from a state without that state's own consent, and that's indicia of each state's relative standing. So when people say we've got to d- combine the Dakotas and make D.C. a state, well, because the Dakotas separately already enjoy senatorial representation, they are co-equal to all other states. Um, it was previously occasionally and uh, applied to describe the branches. I believe there was a, a, an upstate New York congressman in the 1820s who referred to having three co-equal branches of government. He was referring to the House, the Senate, and the presidency. Uh, the Supreme Court didn't rate at that point, uh, which also seemed to be the prevailing opinion of Supreme Court justices uh, who hated their jobs and tried to quit being Supreme Court justices as often as possible. Um, the modern usage essentially says is, is, a, is a creed de corps on the part of Congress to the executive saying, respect us, damn it. Um, and it's funny because it's Congress effectively undercutting its own status as the supreme branch in the Constitution. Uh, this became an argument in the 1970s during the uh, Nixon presidency. And what was happening was uh, Nixon was embroiled in three simultaneous political confrontations with Congress, one of which most famously, of course, is Watergate. But equally and perhaps even more politically important were uh, fights over the expansion of the Vietnam War into Cambodia, uh, which he did more or less under his own initiative. And then uh, sort of most materially and tangibly, uh, what the little known today impoundment crisis, during which Nixon essentially did an end run around Congress to prevent spending as a means of containing inflation. Uh, Inflation, thanks to the Great Society and Uh, Vietnam was going crazy, and Nixon was vetoing spending bills. Congress was then overriding his veto. And instead of then spending the money as he'd been directed to do, Nixon was using a power called impoundment to refuse to spend the money. Now, what was impoundment? Impoundment was a longstanding power. It got its first sort of trial run during the Jefferson presidency uh, when Jefferson um, impounded some money that had been allocated to buy some boats and then redirected it to buy some different boats. Not something we need to dwell on. But uh, what it meant was that the president could hold on to funds allocated by Congress and direct them to a materially equivalent or substantively equivalent end. And Nixon was abusing this power and basically saying, I don't care that you've overridden my veto. I'm going to impound 
um, these funds and not spend them to try to control inflation. And this threw fire on the Watergate investigation. And so Watergate, so the Watergate investigators began to ramp up pressure on Nixon to try to get him to release these funds to curtail American involvement in Cambodia. And uh, one of the things they were constantly trying to do was get more evidence, get more documents from him. And Nixon contended that he didn't have to hand things over to Congress and he didn't have to listen to them when they overrode his veto because the executive and the legislature were co-equal branches, that is to say, equal and corresponding branches. Now, this is, if you think about it critically, facially nonsense for a lot of reasons. One is the Congress can fire the president. The president cannot fire a single member of Congress. The only way to get rid of a member of Congress is for Congress to kick that person out, right? The president has no role in amending the Constitution. Congress does, right? If you can, if Jonah, you and I are both, say, working at the remnant and um, you can fire me, but I can't fire you, we're not equal, right? You may be indolent, slothful, uninterested in doing your job. And then also, or you may may be Congress, you know, one, (laughs) uh, but just because you can't effectuate a power doesn't mean you still have it, or it doesn't mean that I then also enjoy that power. And, um, uh, what happened was Nixon asserted this doctrine of co-equality as a means of essentially doing an in-run around Congress, avoiding records requests, et cetera. But in any system where you have a collective group of decision makers, i.e. Congress and a single decision maker, i.e. the president. Uh, if they are in fact equal or co-equal, then the singular person will obviously dominate because that person enjoys energy dispatch and all the Hamiltonian um, you know, labels applied to executive power. So it, it, if you think about it at all, it's obvious nonsense, both as a matter of structure and as a matter of text. But after Nixon's resignation, Congress passed a whole bunch of framework statutes to try to corral the executive power, which there was this, I think, errant myth that Watergate was a byproduct of a runaway executive as opposed to more contingent things. And in the hearings around these, uh, Ford would be asked, well, essentially in like a case of constitutional Stockholm syndrome, do you as president pledge to treat Congress with the respect owed to a co-equal branch? And so even though um, the idea was a, a, essentially a, a, a BS idea cooked up by Nixon as a way to cover his ass, uh, Congress internalized it and then, you know, like some victim of systematic abuse, began to spit back its own, <laughs> the the concept to the executive who then said, yes, I, I will respect Congress as a co-equal branch. So anyway, that's sort of the, that, the. Right. I mean, it, it, the, 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 the main takeaway, Congress is supreme, yes. you know, uh, first among equals at the very least. Right. And, I, I mean, um, I, would, I wouldn't call them equals, right? I mean, right, Congress can right. scalp most of the courts. They can add more members to the Supreme Court if they want. If the president vetoes it, they can override it. They can get rid of the president. They can tax, which the tax. founders had some strong views on. As, as John Marshall said, the power to tax is the power to destroy. So, yes. Um, so is in a movie that has, has put stink on your name an orbital uh, station mm. that can uh, blow up a planet from outer space. But that's... That's not in the Constitution. Um, no, I just this is this is one of my bugaboos. I know you you agree with me in broad brushstrokes. Is just simply that a lot of our problems in American life or in American politics stem from the fact that Congress is unwilling to do the job that it was intended to do, and that the founders kind of kind of blew it in a certain way by not anticipating the possibility that 
the members of Congress would not be jealous guardians of their own power and prerogatives, right? I mean, well, the the issue is is that the founders. I mean, look, the framers of the Constitution had a lot of brilliant insights, but they had this giant blind spot around questions of political party. So, um, you know, the only really durable institutions in American life have been political parties and the more or less two-party system slash four-party alliance system that we've had in American politics since, you know, the election of 1800. Uh, but the the reality is, is that the theory of partisanship, the idea of parties as organized entities of collective responsibility competing for political power with the electorate over differing visions of the general good was utterly unknown to the framers. Now, that's not to say they didn't understand faction. They had a strong theory of faction, and obviously Madison's writing on faction is one of his great insights. But a faction and a party are different things, even though we use them interchangeably. And so while these mechanisms were essential to creating collective responsibility in government, and we would benefit from having stronger political parties, frankly, um, they are, the, the Constitution just does not cognize them at all. And I, I don't know that I have a good answer for what would be the right kind of constitutional amendment to make the Constitution more realist, because our parties have built up around the constitutional architecture that we have. Um, but certainly they had a massive blind spot there. And that's where they misunderstood that at the individual level, a member of Congress's interests might be best served through an alliance with the executive, as opposed to defending the prerogatives of Congress. Now, they were aware that could happen. Um, you know, their, their critique of parliament, the, the sort of country party Bolingbroke critique of parliament, uh, got expressed in the prohibition on multiple office holding and honors and, and hereditary titles and things like that, because they saw that as the principal means by which executives would co-opt and corrupt legislators as individuals. But again, because they operate in this weird 15-year sort of pre-factional um, theory period, they just don't have an account of political parties and what they do to realign the, the motivations and interests. Um, yeah, yeah, so it's funny. I mean, you, and you've pointed me to a lot of stuff that I've read about all of this. But like, if you go back and you read Aristotle through almost basically Burke, right? The the word party comes up a lot, but what they mean by that isn't an organization that does get out the vote efforts. It's it's basically a faction or a clan. What's a class? Or a class. It's a class right. in a lot of cases, right? So. Um, you know, the, the biggest intellectual innovation that Madison comes up with is not actually his theory of factions. It's his theory of the extended republic. So in Republican theory, which is what's guiding the framers. Small uh, R. Small R. Republican, Republican theory. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, they really are building off of some, some ideological foundations that view republics as small and contiguous. Um, they're obviously was one extended republic before in the form of Rome that they looked to as a model and by way of Machiavelli that they tried to learn a lot from. But Roman politics was still dominated in the Roman capital through class war between the, the, the elites and the many. Now, when we talk about class, we anachronistically project all of this Marxist baggage onto it where we see class struggle as the engine of, of history and, and the force driving historical materialism. And all of that was nonsense, you know, Classical Republican theory doesn't even really have a linear concept of time. So certainly they don't have this teleological idea of, of classes through conflict reconciling or, you know, 
creating synthesis. But um, yeah, the, the theory of faction was primarily a theory of class, the struggle between the many and the few, and the degenerate forms of government that could become kinds of tyranny when the interests of a class came to replace the interests of the whole, the whole entity, right? The whole unit. So when Jefferson says, um, if the only way I can get into heaven is with a party, then I wouldn't go, words to that effect, is he talking about class there? Well, no, because when Jefferson's saying this, um, I mean, for one thing, he's just blowing smoke, right? Because Jefferson was more than happy to pay Thomas Callender to slander people, and he was more, more than happy to engage in some really brutal rough-and-tumble politicking, uh, including jailing newspaper men and things like that. Um, the Federalists weren't the only ones who did that. Um, what he is essentially doing is he, he is talking about any form of corruption, of factional government. So corruption, classically understood, is the twisting of, um, of the government to serve the, 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 the venal interests of the few. And that's, that's what he means by party. He means factional tyranny or corruption. Whereas, whereas Burke, Burke is writing shortly before and then during and after the, the American Revolution about rather than trying to persist in this benighted vision that, that all faction is ephemeral or artificial or intrinsically corrupt, he says, look, maybe it's inevitable, right? You know, Machiavelli says it's inevitable. Aristotle says it's inevitable. Instead of talking about these things as, as having to be reconciled through struggle, perhaps what we ought to do is invest factions with ideology and then have them compete in the public mind for power um, based on differing visions of the general good. Um, but there was some class consciousness bar- baked into some of Burke's stuff, though, oh, right? I mean, tons, it wasn't... tons. Yeah. Yeah, for okay. sure. That's my recollection of it. For sure. Um, but, it, but it's also, I mean, it's worth keeping in mind. Because, like, even his little platoons thing, which people, Nis- Nisbetians like me, right. quote all the time, he was talking about class when he's talking about little platoons. He was talking about people's sort of niches in society to a certain extent. I mean... It had, a, had some other connotations to it, but class is very difficult to take out of it when you actually read the actual passage. Well, I mean, he's, he's also writing in a society with inherited orders in a house of lords that still counts. So, like, class is quite obviously there. It's instantiated in parliament. Um, glad we got that taken care yeah. of. Um, but, okay, so one, one last question on the Watergate stuff about it. Um, um, did I, and this is just a something I know I knew, but now I've purged from my memory banks, but there's a reason why I'm asking it. In all the impoundment stuff and the, the related Cambodia and Watergate stuff and all of that, Nixon never claimed that he could refuse, um, at least once a court agreed with it, an impeachment request, right? Um I don't, I don't remember, and so I don't want to be wrong, but I think that's correct. I, it was, he was mostly pursuing dilatory tactics. Um, I, I, don't, you know, I don't know that he ever – I don't know that I want to say for sure that he never said, oh, there's no path, right? Or there's like the court I, – I don't have to turn things over to a court because they were throwing a lot of arguments up against the wall. But in general, yes, he was – once the federal court sided with Congress – that's when the clock started to count down rapidly to his re- resignation. Right. I mean, the reason I bring it up is, I mean, I know we had disagreements about the Trump impeachment, but one of the arguments that really bothered me was this notion that executive privilege um, is a shield against impeachment inquiries, where right. that, the that, entire that, notion of executive privilege comes from George Washington saying, 
I'm not going to give the House this crap because they don't have the authority for it. But of course, if this were an impeachment inquiry, I would. Yeah, I, right? the, the thing is, is that um, that argument was, to put it as politely as possible, hot nonsense. Um, now, it's important to, disag- to distinguish between an argument that a lawyer makes, right, um, on behalf of his client and reality. So, you know, Trump's attorneys are entitled to make whatever argument they want in the well of Congress. And we're entitled to say that's bull****. And that's what it was. It was, it was bull****. So I, I don't, you know, I don't view it as a sin against the constitution for the president's lawyers to make arguments. I mean, they could make arguments of any variety, right? Whatever they want. But we, as the public are charged with the, with the, um, capacity of, of determining the validity of those arguments. Well, let me push back on that just ever so slightly. Um, if if we were talking about a criminal trial, I would agree with you, right? Whatever you can do to get your client off. But in an impeachment trial, do you really think that there's nothing wrong with, say, the White House counsel, who is supposed to be there representing the institution of the presidency, making those arguments? Well, there's, um, there's nothing constitutionally wrong with it. I think there's I, it, you could look at it and say this is unethical, this is immoral, this is politically stupid and self-harming. Um, all of that, I sure, totally. But I, I don't think that the I don't think that a subordinate executive officer owes a higher responsibility to Congress such that it would constrain his making of arguments because I think Congress is perfectly capable of looking at an argument like that and going, "Get the hell out of here, that's dumb," which is effectively what they did. Yeah, except, I mean, the flip side of that is because of that blind spot we talked about earlier, both parties in many ways sort of operate as if they're members of a parliamentary system when they're not. And um, I don't think that, say, 50 years ago, under similar circumstances, you would have had Republicans um, basically outsourcing whatever responsibilities they had to the executive branch. I mean, I I don't recall Ted Cruz, who's got some legal chops, or basically any other Republican senator actually dismissing any of those arguments. You know, they just sort of said, eh, and kind of moved on. I mean, I I will probably, I mean, I know we disagree on this, but the, um, I think that the the big thing with them was they, they just my father's an attorney and he has an aphorism where he says, you know, if you have the law, argue the law. If you have the facts, argue the facts. If you don't have the law and you don't have the facts, bang on the table and shout. And um, they had the facts in my view and certainly in their view. Um, and, you know, I think if you look at Romney's argument for why he voted for impeachment, it it falls apart. It's internally kind of a disaster. So, um, you know, they're, they're, you didn't have to reach the legal argument. I think if you did have to reach the legal argument, then I think we would have seen a lot more people express a lot more discomfort with the irrigation to the executive branch of just overwhelming insulation. Yeah. I, I, again, I don't want to relitigate no, all totally. of it. I thought it was, it was eminently impeachable, um, whether or not he should be impeached for, when I say impeachable, whether or not he should be removed for it is a much more prudential question. I think Lamar Alexander's position was, intellectually defensible, which was that he did it, but what are you going to do? You know, and he's not going to remove it. Ironically, the one law that the president might have broken was one of those framework statutes passed after Watergate, uh, which was the Anti-Impoundment Act. So Congress, 
during the Ford administration, actually, they, they may have forced Nixon to veto this and then overridden his veto. I can't remember the exact timing, but I think maybe they overrode Nixon's veto on this. They took the impoundment power away from the White House, which is too bad, actually. I think a constrained and healthy impoundment power would be good for the executive branch. Um, but, you know, that's, a, that's another longer question. Um, and we really should reserve an entire episode just to just for the, the impoundment the, power, the impoundment, and you didn't even mention the word rescission. Oh, which, I know, you know, I know. Well, kind of breaks yeah, my heart. We can do a, we can do a, um, we'll do a panel discussion with you, me, and Adrian Vermeule, and literally five people will be thrilled to listen to it. Yeah, and, and with Vermeule there, we can talk about how they did it better in 14th century France. Yeah, well, I mean, he actually his I I he is very well known for his tweeting and his advocacy on on behalf of Catholic integralism, but. Um, when I wrote my dissertation, oh, I know he knows his real constitutional. Oh, stuff yeah, well, well, administrative yeah, yeah. law is his real specialty, and um, I wrote a dissertation on emergency powers and drew a lot on his his research and writing on that. Um, um, all right, so I wasn't planning on talking about this, but it just come, came to mind. Um, in lieu of me asking you how the race is going, which we'll, we'll get to, I should I should tell listeners who don't know this, like I often complain, um, and listeners are used to me complaining about public intellectual, conservative intellectuals, writers, pundits, however you want to define them, who think that their real job is to be uh, GOP political consultants. Mm-hmm. And you are the sort of mirror, you're the universe with Spock with a goatee on this because <laughs> you're an actual political consultant who spends a lot of time being a public intellectual, which is a different thing. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure if I deserve the t- title intellectual, but yeah, I mean, my day job has nothing to do with writing. Like it doesn't pay the rent. I I do campaigns. Um, I write ads. I make capital allocation decisions. Um, I do that sort of scut work. So yes, I am actually a a an ad professional advocate for the GOP. But I I try not to intermingle that with my um, public pronunciations. So I just sort of use the use the discussion as a as an outlet. Okay, I, I very rarely uh, uh, whip guests to do any full disclosures. But just I think this is before we go on. Are you doing any work for the Trump campaign? No, I'm not involved in the presidential campaign. Okay. So that said, uh, do you think, um, with all that out of the way, uh, would the race be going better if uh, they had actually removed Trump from office and Mike Pence was the, was running? Ooh, um, that's an interesting question. Uh, let me think about that. I'm inclined to say no. Uh, just because, generally speaking, parties, I, I think that that would have set off a process of really intense internecine recrimination within the party. Um, now, I assume we're also assuming in this environment that Mike Pence is running a coronavirus response, too. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, um, and he would be communicating on his own feet on that. You know, Pence is, I think, an underrated as a communicator. People forget that he was a radio host for years and doing live radio is like powerlifting for your, your communication skills. So he, um, I think that he would have been a much more effective messenger on the issue of coronavirus and perhaps the entire previous impeachment melodrama would have been subsumed under COVID, et cetera. So it, I guess it's conceivable that it would be going better because he would be a more effective communicator, et cetera. Obviously you couldn't have known about that ex ante because coronavirus just wasn't, yeah, wasn't something. I guess it was right around the corner, <laughs> like waiting, but. Yeah, no, actually Tom Cotton left the impeachment trial to go talk to the White House about doing the China shutdown. Right. 
because of Wuhan while that was all going yeah, on. Yeah, which which is an interesting. I, I guess you know, given assume Nancy Pelosi holding impeachment articles for thirty days for unknown reasons and and other things. Yeah, I, maybe, but it's it's hard to it's hard to say. I don't. I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to bet money on it. And if 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 the pandemic had not materialized into the problem that it is, that little episode in that season of the Trump show would be sort of like the um, the Russian in the Pine Barrens and the Sopranos. It would be like, why did Tom Cotton leave again? And then it, nothing ever came of it. Right, but, right. Yeah, if it, had ju- if it had been like SARS even or or swine flu, yeah, I think um, it's, it's totally, or even Ebola, uh, it would have been, because Ebola was a big deal politically in 2014. People forget about that. Like Obama lost a lot of ground with people on um, – on what we call valence issues, which are just issues of general default concern, economic growth, security, law and order, et cetera, um, around Ebola, even though we only had a handful of cases make it to the U.S. But yes, I think that's right. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, this is a something I've talked about before. I got a lot from Jonathan Haidt on this stuff about how notions of hygiene mm-hmm. and disease are so well-placed in our lizard brains and they're so close to how we view things about politics and the other and all of these kinds of things that diseases freak people out politically more than they rationally should in some ways. I, you know? I, I didn't write about pandemics in my dissertation, and I really wish that I had. It was a huge mistake um, because the pandemic is is this unique, perfect storm crisis where it triggers deep anxiety. It has material consequences that are cross-cutting, that don't align cleanly with parties, and you also have, um, you know, you have crisis management and the kind of blunt force use of the state in daily life. So it, it has a lot of the obvious elements of emergency government in other forms of crises, but it, it has a unique set of problems, not least of which is that you make a bunch of decisions early on when you don't know anything and right, you just have right, no right. idea what's going on. Yeah. Um, okay. So... I can't have you on without doing some rank punditry. Sure. Um, but and we are recording this on Tuesday, but it probably won't air until at least Thursday. So we won't know how to factor in what will obviously be a tour de force of statesmanship with Donald Trump returning to do the press conferences for the pandemic. Right. Um, but that said, uh, as of Tuesday at 2.18 p.m., um, how do you feel the race is going? Uh, well, not not well for the president. Um, I don't think it's controversial to say that. You know, he's trailing in in the polling, uh, and the mood of the country is pretty grim. Um, I I think it's still right to say this thing isn't done. Um, there are structural factors that could help him out, and I apologize for the background honking if you can hear that. It's the joy of living in Manhattan. Um, Things are getting. It gives it gives the podcast a gritty. Yeah, things are getting back to normal. People are yelling at each other and honking in Manhattan. Um, The, I, you never you never want to be a president with high unemployment. You never want to be a president with um, people feeling pessimistic about the future of the country, and you never want to be a president trailing in all the polls. All that is true. Having said that, you also always want to be a president where the economy is growing going into the third quarter of the year. Um, when you're up for re-election, you want to be a president who is running against a weak opponent. And I do think Joe Biden is a pretty weak opponent as a candidate. He's not going to be able to make a forceful and assertive case for himself. 
Um, and, you know, many chief executives relish the opportunity to lead in a crisis because it highlights their personal qualities. It does not highlight, it does highlight the personal qualities of Donald Trump, but I don't think that they're <laughs> ones that um, endear him to the electorate when it comes to his, his crisis management. So, no, I, I think, um, you know, Trump's not dead by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but he, he needs, he has ground to make up among elderly voters who are a disproportionate chunk of the electorate, and I think also with white women. Um, and uh, he had been doing comparatively well with uh, minority voters, especially minority men, based on the, the, um, you know, the credit he was getting for economic performance during the first three years of his presidency. I also think he was getting a lot of credit from people because we have not started any foreign wars. And uh, compared to his predecessors, Trump has been more or less a peacenik. Um, and he was positioning himself well to run for reelection on a peace and prosperity argument that sort of, that was thrown into the wood chipper by Corona. And I, he, at least the public polling suggests that the American people do not think he's risen to the occasion. So what do you make of this as, and this is just pure political consultant punditry, but, um, one of the arguments you hear from Democrats, uh, Biden supporters, is that you're right. He's not a particularly strong candidate. But just as the pandemic puts in stark relief a lot of things that people don't like about Donald Trump, um, his inconstancy, his inability to sort of stay focused, um, his inability not to let, not to turn everything into a thing about himself, all of these kinds of things, um, his need for rallies, which is all sorts of problems have knock-on effects, the pandemic is actually really good for Biden, right? Because, he, I mean, I was arguing during the primaries that he should run a for, front porch campaign because he suffers when he goes out in public. And um, he benefits when he can give a set speech in front of a teleprompter um, without taking a lot of questions. Um, and you sort of go through all of the things that are forcing Biden to be, run the kind of campaign that he is. And it turns out that they're actually really good for Biden. Mm -hmm. And there's obviously still a non-trivial chance, a, a, a chance. There's almost a deadlock cinch that he is going to say more stupid things that feed into the, you know, he's not mentally competent narrative. But at the same time, it's like, I, I, I would say that the pandemic is probably worth five points in the polls for, for Biden because it allows him to just simply not be Trump and have a legitimate reason for not being out there reminding people of how he's a weak candidate. I think that's right. Um, it, maybe the way it helps the most is it, it does give him a pretext not to be campaigning aggressively. Um, one thing that I think helped Trump a lot in 2016, and this is anecdotal, I don't, you know, I don't have numbers on this. I'm sure the numbers exist and we could find them, but he effectively created the impression that Hillary Clinton was not physically fit to be president and that the, being president is a, a physically demanding job in addition to being a mentally demanding job. And that's true. Now, you know, she had the misfortune to pass out uh, at the September 11th memorial and be tossed in the back of a van like a sack of potatoes, which seemed to ratify all of those, those views um, and also seemed to reaffirm Trump's claim that the, the press was carrying water for her, which I think they were. But, um, you know, I could see in a non-COVID situation, Trump who is a very energetic man for his age and is what, eight years younger than Joe Biden, I think, or six years younger? Something like that. Yeah. Six years, I think. Yeah, yeah, less than a decade, but more than uh, you know, a couple of years. Um, 
making this an energy campaign. You know, he he did for all that he can be accused of being lazy about certain administrative components of of the job and and taking too many vacations. When he was campaigning in the last ten weeks of um, of the election in 2016, he was doing about three times as many events as Hillary Clinton and was working extremely hard. So I do think there would be, in a non-COVID world, I think that Biden's lack of energy would be more apparent. Biden's uh, lack of coherence would be more apparent because he would have to be out there on the stump and that that would hurt him. So yes, it, it gives cover for his campaign to keep him from situations that will expose some of his weaknesses as a candidate. And you mentioned his mental competence. And look, Joe Biden said really dumb things, even when he was it at, at the apex of his intellectual powers. So it, yeah, it's, he's yeah. consistent on this. Yes, extremely. <laughs> like, you know, I'd, I bet he still has some colorful opinions about who owns Dunkin' Donuts in the Northeast. Um, but the, the fact that he can hide out and just be generic Democrat is working for him. Yeah. And, and, and it just, it's it's this weirdly almost literary serendipitous thing where one of the things one of the, the best things for Trump are those rallies where he feeds off them, but he also gets to test out new material. Um, you know, I kind of suspect that some of his false notes of late are derived in part from the fact that he couldn't test out whether they would bomb with a rally audience, whether it's stuff about the Confederate flag or you know, calling Black Lives Matter a symbol of evil, he could have gotten some of that feedback right. a little earlier. And instead, he has to fall back on what I think has always been one of the things that's driven me crazy about the guy is his more of a, um, he has more of a caricature understanding of what conservatives believe than a, a you know, a lived experience of what conservatives believe. He kind of has a New York City talk radio um, understanding of what conservatism is. And um, and when he can't test that stuff out, it's it's a liability for him. It also, I think it was MBD, who I will not call the notorious MBD, uh, said on the editors recently, um, it's also a way for him to say things that get his uh, critics to repeat his message. And doing that same thing in a coronavirus press conference has a completely different valence to it, right? Um, you know, people say, oh, he's just giving red meat to his big fans when he does it in a rally, when he goes off about how, you know, the Obama campaign spied on him when he's supposed to be talking about mortality rates, it feels like self-indulgence in a way that is less forgivable at a rally. Yeah, well, or a lack of focus generally. Yeah, whereas like if he tells some stem winders at a rally, it's a rally, right? Um, no, I think there's something to that. He, he clearly values unmediated forms of communication, uh, specifically Twitter and rallies. I think the rallies are a more organic and uh, more effective uh, form of unmediated, unmediated communication. Twitter is not real life, and um, I don't think the president reads his mentions. So um, yeah, he's certainly being stuck in the White House bubble, in the West Wing bubble, is, is not helping him. Now, that's also hardly unique to Donald Trump. That is something oh, sure. that plagues all presidents. And, you know, I, I think there was a period of time uh, in the last, really the last three years of his presidency, where a, a similar phenomenon was taking place with Barack Obama, where his relationships with the press were so good that he wasn't getting corrective feedback from them. And he had surrounded himself with some really just insufferable bootlickers. And they were giving him 
a false sense of confidence. And then when the 2014 midterms happened and he lost the Senate and Democrats got their clocks cleaned, you know, he didn't respond to that by saying, oh, this is a bolt from the blue sort of intervening, uh, you know, to tell me that the reality as I understand it is not reality. Uh, he instead then immediately snapped, reversed his position on the constitutionality of, of DACA executive orders and, and, you know, doubled down on everything that the praise chorus was telling him. Um, all right, so something else sort of in your wheelhouse I want your take on. I, have, I, I am increasingly skeptical at levels beyond the anecdotal, which I think are real, that there is the secret Trump voter out there. Hmm. But since you actually do this stuff, where, where do you come down? Uh, it's a good question. So I think that it's probably more, it's probably more profitable to talk about 2016 and secret Trump voters than trying to look ahead to 2020 because coronavirus has thrown things into such a mix. Um, and, and just because there were secret Trump voters in 16 doesn't mean there will be in 20, right? And in fact, it stands to reason there will be fewer of them. Uh, so I guess top line, yes, I agree with you. There are probably fewer of them. I think in 2016, uh, Donald Trump did better with some groups than people realized from the polling. Polling subgroups is always hard. You have small samples. Uh, they are, they are not necessarily representative of whole, uh, even within the electorate of their subgroup, et cetera. And exit polls are notoriously, uh, flawed based on compliance bias, um, and more specifically non-compliance bias. I strongly suspect that Donald Trump did worse with Republicans in 2016 than people realize, and that he did better with minorities, uh, especially middle, middle income, uh, minorities and minority men. Um, and that that had a lot to do with his, his win in 16, that and depressed turnout among black women, which we are not going to see in 2020, they are going to turn out and vote. Um, I think those Republicans have come home to Trump, and I think we saw that in uh, in the the polling. However, there is still a what you might call not yet Trump voter uh, from the day he was inaugurated. He has always had a higher job approval than ballot po- positions. There's always been three to four percent of the electorate that are like, "Yes, I think he's doing a good job." I don't know if I'm going to vote for it. Those folks could reasonably be called shy Trump voters. If they come home, will they come home? I don't know. And, and, and just as you can say, oh, we should assume that those folks will come home and vote for Trump, you can just as easily say, well, three years, they've been approving this job performance, and they still won't vote for him. What's it going to take to push them over the edge? And you'll, you'll hear pundits spin up stories like, well, once they have a Democratic opponent and it's a clear binary choice, they will change, yada, yada. The fact of the matter is we don't know. Um, I do think that had coronavirus not happened, the economy continued to grow, et cetera, or even if it had slowed somewhat, he probably would have continued to enjoy shy Trump voters among women and, and minority men. Um, I don't know that he's going to have those folks this time because of the way the, the pandemic response has gone. Um, I know that's a whole lot of words to say, who knows, but, but I think that's, that's the truth. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I've been meaning to write a column about it. Um, and on the one hand, when I talk to people like you, that all sounds utterly reasonable to me. Um, but then when I read the, the contrary case, I find that pretty reasonable, too. You know, they had a recent episode of 538 where they talked about this. And, you know, one of the points that they talk about there is that, um, first of all, if, if 
if there was this much of a shy Trump effect, you would see differentials between robocalls and live person mm. footing, uh, polling, and you basically don't. And even the Trump campaign and well, well, that, ran some not, of these tests. That's not true, actually. So you do see a you don't see as much split between robos and live calls, but you do see a big split between online and phone. So the phone polls are not good for Trump. The online polls are also not good, but are not nearly as bad. So there is there is a polling effect. What does it mean? We don't know. Because obviously your online polls are non-probability samples. Query whether or not your phone polls are going to be non-probability samples, given all the underlying variation in the population about who has a cell phone, who has a landline, who complies, et cetera, and the really low compliance rates. Although they've still been predictive, even as compliance rates have collapsed. So there is a split based on polling format. It's just not the same ones in the past. And then there's also just the, um, you know, the fact that you would expect, like, again, I, I, I believe there are shy Trump voters. The question is, if you listen to certain Types on you know Fox or Fox Business or on talk radio, you there is this belief that um, there's this large reserve army of uh, people who are afraid to say that they're going to vote for Trump. And just as a matter of common sense, you would think most of those people lived in places that Trump isn't going to carry anyway, right? I mean, so if his margin of defeat in New York or in the Connecticut suburbs or wherever is only five points instead of 10, who, who cares, right? And, um, um, and Well, that matters a lot to the down-ballot candidates, to be That's fair. right, and, and that's something so, I want to talk about. So that's, but, that's yeah. where I think a lot of that conversation may not be terribly precise, but when people are talking about shy Trump voters, look, he needs to win the states in the upper Midwest. End of story, right? He's got to hold on to Arizona, hold on to Florida, and, you know, I think he can lose Pennsylvania, but he's got to have Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, and then he's got to win Wisconsin. And I think it's safe to assume he's going to lose Michigan. I think, you know, Minnesota is a weird case. There's a world in which he loses Michigan, but wins Minnesota because third party voting is going to collapse. They had an extremely high third party voting rate in 2016. Um, but yeah, I think the when we talk about shy Trump voters, like it, it's all kind of beside the point at the presidential level. Shy or not, he's got to compete in the states that get him to 270, right? Um, when it comes to down ballot, though, I think that's where you have, there's a reasonable conversation to be had. Oh, are there suburban women who feel a social desirability pressure to say they don't like Trump, but are actually going to vote Trump? Okay, maybe, maybe. And, and you know, as a Republican strategist, I hope so. Uh, I also hope they don't then just leave. I hope they keep voting down ballot and continue to vote, you know, pull the lever for Republicans. Um, those are the sorts of things that are fun to talk about. But to pretend that we really have any ideas, I don't, I don't think we know. There are, there are some ways to test these things out, but no one's doing it at scale in public in such a way as to be, in my view, persuasive one way or the other. So do you, where, where do you think, and I, again, if I, I'm going to leave it to you, what disclosures you want to make, sure. but like on the, um, on the Senate side, uh, how do you think things look right now? Ooh, um, it's, it's going to be a battle. Um, you know, uh, I, I don't think other than the Kansas Senate race, um, I don't think there's a Senate primary that can put a seat in play that's not in play. 
uh, other than Kansas. If if Chris Kobach wins the nomination in Kansas, that's a real problem for for, the, for holding on to the Senate because Barbara Barbara Bowyer is going to have all the money in the world, and there is a sizable never Kobach vote in my in my home state. Now, in the interest of full, full disclosure, I have in the past worked for outside groups that supported Roger Marshall and Chris Kobach, so I have I have worked on efforts that have helped both of those candidates out. Um, I I personally hope that Roger Marshall wins because I think he'll win the general election. I think that's what the polling shows. Um, I do think there is a world in which Kobach could get the nomination and still win in November, but it's going to be an expensive and difficult proposition, which you don't want. Um, taking Kansas off the table, uh, you know, Colorado is going to be an uphill climb. We're very lucky that the best campaigning senator in the Senate is our candidate in Colorado. It may not matter. Uh, Cory Gardner is a very good candidate. He's a good fit for the state. He's been a very effective senator. Might not matter. Arizona, it, it's and Cory Gardner has to overperform Trump, right? I mean, he yeah, he, he needs Trump to do better than people expect. Now, tr- now, Colorado wasn't a blowout last time. I think people have a misapprehension that Hillary blew Donald Trump out of the water in Colorado. Um, if if Donald Trump is down by to Joe Biden in Colorado by three, Cory Gardner's got a fighting chance. It's looking tough to imagine Trump getting to that gap. Right, because Cory Gardner will overperform Trump. In Arizona, we've got the opposite situation where Trump very well could carry the state, and the incumbent senator Martha McSally could lose to Mark Kelly, the former astronaut and husband of Gabby Giffords. It's pretty hard to see Martha McSally winning Arizona. Oh, I I, 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 want to hear the rest of this, but you're the actually person to ask this question. Sure. If McSally loses, will she be the first senator to lose? two different Senate seats back-to-back within two years? Uh, no, because um, Scott Brown did that in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, but, oh, okay. but maybe in the same state. I don't know. I, I think possibly. Possibly. Um, All right, go on, go on. I want to hear about Maine. And- yeah, so then, then it looks like, you know, Tommy Tuberville or Jeff Sessions, either one would have picked up Alabama. I think Tuberville will beat Jones. So if you say... Colorado, let's just for the sake of argument, say Colorado and Arizona are losses for the GOP. Alabama's a gain. They've gone from, uh, they've, they've gone to, what are they at that point? 53, right? Uh, so then you look at the next tranche of, of races. You have Maine, North Carolina, and Iowa, I think are the next, you know, obvious targets. Um, North Carolina is going to be a really tight fight, but I do think Trump will carry the state at the top of the ticket. Tom Tillis may run a point behind Trump. That may be enough to put uh, Cal Cunningham over the top, but I, I feel like that's going to just be kind of a national party question. Um, uh, Joni Ernst in Iowa is a very good candidate. I, I do think her her positive re- reputation in the state has taken a hit recently, but she her opponent Greenfield is not as good a candidate as I think the DSCC thought she would be when they basically picked her. Um, in Maine, you know, Maine is a very small state. They're going to have ranked choice voting. That's going to throw a wrinkle into it. Uh, Susan Collins has been there for a long time and uh, people may decide to turf her out because they hate the president. Sarah Gideon is going to raise the GDP of Ghana as a, as a <laughs> campaign fund, but it's a small state and small states do funky things. And especially, you know, Maine has a very distinctive political culture. I think Trump will do better than people expect up in the North County and, or Arista County um, and among like ethnic Quebecois voters and things like that, Collins has always done pretty well with those folks as while holding on to some crossover support in, in the waterfront, whether she can hold on to that crossover supports a real question. That's kind of what's going to decide the election. All three of those folks could lose. All three of those folks could win. Um, 
Obviously, for the the Democrats to retake the Senate, they're going to have to sweep those. And then they've got to be playing in some of the reach states. Bullock against Danes in Montana, the two races in Georgia, um, and, you know, a, a case like Kansas. So, um, yeah, there's a world – This we're, we're entering into a situation where there is a wide range of possible outcomes in the Senate. You could see a kind of 2014 in reverse. I think the most likely outcome is still that – just looking at the Senate – is still that Republicans hold on, but um, a lot of that's going to hinge on on Trump's overall performance and the 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 down ballot bleed if he is if he's lagging, even if he's losing to Biden by one and two points in a ton of swing states, could be enough that the that the Republican incumbents get sunk, right? I mean, there's there's a world in which Joe Biden loses or wins all the swing states by one point and all the Republican incumbents get reelected. That it's not likely, but that world exists. And we did see a gap between Trump and incumbent U.S. senators in 16. Does that gap persist? Hard to say. Well, I mean, in, in 2016, you know this better than I do, but I swear that in a lot of races, the senators overperformed Trump by pretty significant numbers. Like the senators, you could argue, had coattails for Trump, not the other way around. Yeah, I don't know if they'd be coattails just because I, you know, reverse coattails is such a, a funky thing. I think the only place where I would say there were probably identifiable reverse coattails would be Florida, where the Rubio re-election effort took over a lot of the RNC and Trump victory efforts and, and geared it. And especially in central Florida, I think the Rubio team did a really good job. And they you could say they had reverse coattails. I don't know that Ron Johnson in Wisconsin did. I think he just beat Russ Feingold like a rented mule and, uh, you know, Trump overperformed expectations there. Similar with Toomey in Pennsylvania, though, in that case, it had a lot to do with just depressed turnout in Philadelphia. Like people just didn't show up. And vote. Yeah. I just, for the record, that was the most praise I've ever heard from you for Marco Rubio. Yeah. So and I, I, I call I, him I, like I see him. Fair enough. I, I, I admire you for it. Um, so wouldn't it, for, for people who are concerned about, I'm going to put it this way. Um, I think we disagree to some extent on the damage, the long-term damage the Trump presidency has done to conservatism. I'm, I'm sort of in the Ross Douthat camp that um, uh, a lot of the stuff that we're, a lot of the terrible stuff we're seeing in terms of the protests and whatnot are the result of Trump and that there's this strange irony in um, him talk, running as the law and order candidate when I think a lot of the Lawlessness and disorder is a is a is a protest against him. Um, in much the same way, you had this sort of antibody response to Obama with the Tea Parties. You have an antibody response to um, Trump with all of this craziness. And um, but regardless of how you come down on that, I as a conservative, I personally am trying to sort of get out of this sort of rooting for specific specific electoral results stuff. Because um, I think too many guys, people in my line of work do too much of that. But I would like to see the Republicans hold on to the Senate. Um, I think it would be good for a lot of things if they held on to the Senate. Um, I'm a, I am certainly have my criticisms of Mitch McConnell. But um, I, I kind of admire the guy. You know, he's an institutionalist. He, he didn't give in to the, you know. It's funny, like the Wall Street Journal just recently had this piece, this editorial just... You know, waving the bloody shirt that Biden is going to get rid of the legislative filibuster and you should be terrified. That's why you should vote, you know, for Trump and blah, 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 blah. And it didn't, I don't think it mentioned that Trump 
publicly demanded that the Republicans get rid of the legislative filibuster a couple times quite adamantly. And McConnell was like, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. And I don't think McConnell gets the credit he deserves for that. Um, but anyway, my point is, is what, you know, first of all, what is your assessment of, of the health of the GOP as a result of the Trump years? And, um, and wouldn't it be, when do we get to the point where Republican senators break with the White House and just say, and run their own game? And, and, or is that impossible now, given the nature of the core Trump base and how vindictive they are? against people who criticize Trump? Well, it's impossible now in part because the legislative calendar doesn't demand it, right? Um, but I think a lot of people want a showdown late in the stage of a policy fight. And what a lot of people miss is that effective constraint happens at the beginning. And Mitch McConnell has been, I would argue, uniquely effective among legislative leaders in the last 30 years at constraining a president of his own party. Um, Donald Trump has not done a whole lot of things that Mitch McConnell didn't want done because he's been really good at getting Donald Trump to get distracted by something or just ignore it or to move on to something else. Um, that hasn't always redounded to Donald Trump's political benefit for what it's worth, right? I, I think if we were to do a postmortem on this, you know, he probably would have been better served going along with Paul Ryan's uh, border adjustment tax plan. And an, and an infrastructure bill rather than trying to repeal and replace Obamacare um, rather than, and rather than the tax cut. Even though the tax cut they passed was by GOP standards comparatively very progressive, little p, uh, in, in that it did focus primarily on middle earners and lower earners. It, nonetheless, those, were, those helped Democrats portray Donald Trump as a bog standard Republican, but bog standard Republican policy was exactly what Mitch McConnell wanted and it's what his caucus wanted to help them get reelected. And so um, all of that is to say that I think the um, – I think that people want a fight, but if you have a fight, an intra-party fight on the floor of the Senate, that means that you've already blown through a series of checkpoints unsuccessful – that, that have failed. Um, you mentioned the legislative filibuster. Yeah, I mean McConnell easily could have gone nuclear on that. He didn't. I think most of the Democrats expected that he would go nuclear on that. He didn't. He won't. Um, he believes in brokering in the Senate as a means of getting more sensible policy. Uh, there's a difference between the GOP and the conservative movement, as every conservative intellectual never tires of saying. We'll start with the GOP. I think the GOP is going to be fine. You know, parties lose. We have not gotten crushed the way the Democrats did under Obama. We still have very strong candidates down ballot at the state level. There are st some states are better than others. You know, I think the benches in North Carolina and Arizona could be a lot better than they are. On the other hand, and, and you know, Minnesota continues to be a state we underperform in. But on the whole, you know, we have we've seen major losses in state legislatures, which you would expect. Some of them may happen at a really inopportune time because of redistricting. Having said that, you know, we're not in the 900 numbers of state legislator defeat, legislative defeats like you had under Obama, which did real damage to the Democratic bench. Um, where the GOP has problems uh, is, is this. Trump may have been an expediter of this phenomenon, but it was happening already. There's a theory out there that Biden rents the suburbs for November and then they flip back. And I think in the midterms, they would probably flip back against unified Democratic government as a check. But the suburbs are going blue for reasons that have to do with much bigger factors than 
who the presidential nominees are. Uh, there are a lot more unmarried women living in the suburbs now. There's more poverty in the suburbs now. The suburbs are more racially diverse than they used to be. And in my view, one of the single biggest factors is the explosion of education and healthcare as industries that employ a lot of people in the suburbs. And these are kind of para-state industries that remove people from the ebb and flow of capitalism, um, have a lot to do with making a democratic vote on social issues a more appealing proposition for suburban voters who tend to be more socially moderate or even socially liberal uh, because they're not experiencing the economic effects of market behavior that generally does better under Republican presidents, or at least that they vote because they prefer um, Republican presidents. Uh, personally, I, I think, you know, I, I, I think there's always been, and I wrote something in National Review, it was a short piece on reform conservatism about this that was maybe a little snottier than I meant for it to be. Uh, but there's always been within the conservative movement this dis, this this confusion, this muddling, um, this fail to this failure to distinguish policy and campaign rhetoric. And conveniently, we intermingle these when they're as levels of analysis when they're helpful to to do right. Like if you look at the George W. Bush presidency on matters of domestic policy, it was pretty damned reformicon. Um, Mitt Romney's campaign, from a policy standpoint wasn't that different from Donald Trump's, right? Fight China, self-deportation. Trump, fight China, build a wall. Uh, and then even as candidate traits, I'm a business guy, I'm, I'm an outsider, I can run things, Trump. I'm a business guy, I'm an outsider, I can run things. Now, personality-wise, very, very different. Very, very different. But um, and, and running against an incumbent president is different than running for an open seat. Um, but I think that the, the GOP is at risk of persistent setbacks in the suburbs that may be masked by a Biden midterm, but they are moving against us. And, and the party is going to have to figure out ways to either win those voters back. I have some thoughts about that. We can go into that if you want, or uh, is going to have to continue to broaden its coalition, including broadening its coalition in uh, more densely populated areas like inner ring suburbs um, and blue collar areas around cities. Um, you look at the Northeast as an area where there are a lot of areas where the GOP could do a lot better. Um, and, and I think that that right there is looming and is something that I am concerned about long term for the GOP. Conservative movement is a different animal entirely. Has Trump damaged the conservative movement? Yes. Was it deserving of being damaged? Probably. I think it had become pretty lazy and self-serving. Um, I think it needed to be shaken up. Uh, and, and frankly, like, it's a fair critique to say that a D.C. consensus on at least downplaying immigration, even though the Weekly Standard National Review came out against amnesty, came out against the Gang of Eight, there was a desire to push down immigration as a salient issue, and the electorate was pushing it up as a salient issue. And, and so I think that in terms of Trump as a symptom of that within the conservative intellectual movement, yeah, it's probably good. Um, are, are we going to talk more about material policy as conservatives going forward as opposed to just talking about tax cuts? I hope so. I hope so. But I also think that, you know, our, our sort of friends on the illiberal right who like to put up a chart about how people are socially conservative but economically liberal miss out on a really concrete fact, which is at the federal, state, and local level, the material base of the Democratic Party is the state, right? This is not Hegel's universal class. You're talking about organized labor in public employment directly funding the opposition party. And so if you want to talk about big government conservatism, 
fine, but you either need to do what Bush did and come up with alternative mechanisms of bureaucratic performance like faith-based initiatives and run seriously on making that work, or you need to be willing to say the table stakes for this are breaking up public employee unions because otherwise big government conservatism is self-defeating because it's funding the political opponent, its political opponents. No, I, there's a lot there I agree with, you know, and, you know, um, you know. Well, to put it simply, though, I would say like the critique of so much of this is this like sub Rosa fight over the 2012 Republican primary. Mm, there's a lot of that, which yeah. is dumb. Um, sorry, it's just dumb. Um, but yeah, it's right that as a matter of political rhetoric, Mitt Romney going around going, I'm going to give your boss a pay cut was not great political rhetoric and concentrating on you know, meat and potatoes issues for people as opposed to the firms they work at is a better move in political rhetoric. And it's a, it's a good thing to keep in mind as a sort of lodestar for new policy. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny. Um, you know, earlier I was saying how Trump has this caricature understanding of what conservatives believe. So did Mitt Romney. Sure. Right. I mean, and the caricatures were very different, you know, Mitt Romney. And I, look, I, I'm, I, I admire Mitt Romney as a person. I think he's that honorable, decent guy. I think the country would have been better off if he won in 2012. Um, uh, that said, you know, I mean, I remember writing at the time, and it was sort of, I'm pretty sure I was the one who coined it. I was saying he spoke conservatism as if it was a foreign language, you know, or a second language. He just, he, you know, remember when he went to CPAC and he talked about how he's a severe yeah, conservative? Well, he, you know? I was going to say, was he tenacious or severely conservative? Yeah, yeah. it was severe, yeah. And yeah. Um, and there's a, the, the thing is, the caricature that, Romney had in mind, I find vastly preferable <laughs> to the one that Trump has in mind. I mean, Trump thinks that there are a large number of conservatives out there who are really passionate about the Confederate flag. Right. He thinks, you know, there is a, I, I've been told with pretty good authority. Well, that, well, and I would, I would actually, I would say beyond that, not only that there are a bunch of them that are passionate about it, but that there aren't any that are turned off by it. And there are actually a lot that are actively turned off by it. Yeah, no, like I, I know someone who was sort of privy to some of these arguments inside the campaign, and Trump had to have it explained to him why he should disavow David Duke, and he really didn't want to do it. And it's not because Trump was a Klansman. It's just that he thought a lot of the voters were. And um, and uh, similarly, I mean, my favorite example of this, uh, I wish I should really commit to memory the exact wording, but at the Republican convention in 2016, he had this line about how in America, we can never allow our GBLTQ yeah. uh, fellow brothers and sisters to be murdered by Islamic terrorists in a nightclub, whatever. And the crowd goes, yay. Yes. And yeah, he's like, I was there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And he was like taken aback. He's like, I'm so proud of you for having that of you for having that reaction. He kind of thought that maybe that this, that they wouldn't be into denying Islamic terrorists the ability to shoot up nightclubs on American soil, you know? Look, like as a matter of ideology, Donald Trump is basically a new dealer, I think in, in most respects, right? He's a, a socially reactionary new dealer in many respects, even though he has pretty libertine sexual views, I think, right? Um, the way this manifests itself politically is he has, because he shares them, a, a deeply intuitive understanding of what the Republican base hates, he does not have any understanding, intuitive or adopted, of what they love. I don't think Mitt Romney had either, and I think that was where there was some alienation, even though, of course, he got more votes in, 
in 2012 than, than Donald Trump did. Um, but he, you know, there were never, people make fun of them, but there were never boat parades for Mitt Romney and there were never going to be. Like Trump has bonded with a chunk of the base in really important ways, but it's ma- mainly through negation. I, I hate the same people you hate. They are my enemies. When he tries to- Or I, or I really hate the people who hate you. Right. I really hate the people who hate you. When he tries to give voice to, and these are your highest aspirations, it kind of falls apart. Yeah. Um, I, there, I very much want to talk to you about your Poodle acquisition. Yes. Uh, but we should do two seconds on um, who Biden should pick as a VP. And someone pointed out to me recently, I had not realized this, but the, with the exception of Gerald, Geraldine Ferraro, the Democrats have picked a senator in every for VP in every race going back like 50 years or something. Interesting. I did not know that. Yeah, it's it's more more interesting trivia you learn here on the remnant. Yeah. Um, so where, where do you come down? So I, I wrote a piece for the Spectator uh, USA that was laying out sort of two roads that um, Biden could go down, and the two there's sort of the 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 win now road and the win later road. The win now road is pick a senator, probably Kamala Harris, who can go out and do a bunch of fundraising and be a hatchet man or hatchet woman for you because he said he's he's picking a woman, um, has an established fundraising base, has been vetted on the national stage, and will just go out and be the aggressive campaigner that you can't be, right? That's the win now version. The win later version is pick somebody who is not a nationally established or even statewide established figure yet who will be your creature because whoever this person is, is going to be a successor designate from day one because Joe Biden is old and seemingly infirm in certain ways. And I, I, and he's actually basically said he's there to be a transition guy. He said he's there to be a transitional figure, but that does not mean he's running for one term. Presidents do not run for one term unless they are physically incapable of doing it. And even in the case of Woodrow Wilson, when they are physically incapable, they still try to run for a third term. And, you know, FDR continued to run. I think absent the constitutional amendment, even though Reagan was clearly aging out of his capacity to fill the office, he would have run again in 88 if he could have, right? I mean, people don't give that up because there is a network of folks around the president and their positions also depend on keeping the person of the president in place. Now, if he picks a Kamala Harris, he runs the risk of having someone with an autonomous foundation from which they can more or less launch a shadow campaign to run in 2024 rather than 2028. If he picks, and the two people that I thought he probably should pick, a Keisha Lance Bottoms or a Val Demings, people who are have, I think, the chops required to plausibly stand as chief executives, mayor of a major city, former police chief, um, they would nonetheless be creatures of Biden world. They wouldn't bring their own apparatus into the White House. You wouldn't have to worry about a fifth column, but they wouldn't be as effective at fundraising. They wouldn't, you would have to be building that persona up in a way you don't have to with a Kamala Harris or an Elizabeth Warren or even a Tammy Duckworth. So to me, the pick is going to be, okay, I will pay costs of managing this person down the line, but I want to win now and I need, I need a hatchet woman during this campaign. If he picks Kamala Harris, that's the play. If he goes for a lesser known figure like a Karen Bass, who I don't think he'll pick, but she's still clearly in consideration, um, that would be, that would be the, the, what I would call the, the win later play. Uh, because Karen Bass is not going to launch a progressive insurgency from within the White House, even though she's well to the left of Joe Biden on everything, including whether or not Fidel Castro was a great guy. So it's funny, uh, a, a political consultant type who everybody listening knows and 
you know, but I will not name, um, once explained to me a long time ago that the whole point of vice presidential searches is to have as big <laughs> a list as possible and make them all do fundraisers for you. And that, and part, that's part of the audition process. And you go around and you basically, you wring as much cash out of them as possible before you narrow down your list because they all want to be talked up that way and they want to prove that they can raise money. Well, it seems to me you that also by, make, you, ma- you also make all of them go through your vetting so you have the dirt on all of your potential challengers from within the party. Right, right. That was the other part of it. Yeah. And um, it seems to me, I mean, I don't know. I haven't been studying how Biden's been doing this, but by coming out of the gate basically saying, well, coming out of the gate definitely saying I'm going to pick a woman, um, it, it, and again, the pandemic is a problem. It doesn't seem like he's doing much of that. I mean, uh, it seems like he's just, and maybe he doesn't have to worry about the money. He does seem to be raising a lot of money of late. Yeah, he's raising a lot of money, and you can't really do fundraisers. Um, and so it means he doesn't necessarily know who has juice. I mean, we know that Kamala Harris can raise money in California, and California is the the big beating heart of the Democratic Party, and especially of Democratic fundraising, even more than New York. So I, I think, you know, if I were to pick, I would probably say it's going to be her. Uh, I think he'll come to regret that choice. But he's already ruled out the two people I think he should have picked. And and because he said he was going to take a woman, Cory Booker was off the table. And I think actually Cory would have been a pretty good vice president because Cory had more or less systematically undercut his own political base among technocratic moderate liberals by running hard to the left in Iowa and New Hampshire, rejecting charter schools because white Democrats hate charter schools and all of those things. Um, and do you have an operational theory about why all of the, I mean, so I, listeners are fully aware of my views on this, but I, I consider Hillary Clinton to be the most consequential public figure of the last 30 years because she was so despised that she got Donald Trump elected. Um, and she was so despised within a certain ranks of the Democratic Party. She almost got Bernie Sanders the nomination. And then in 2016, it was very strange to me that virtually the entire field, with the exception of Biden, we're all running for different flavors of the far left flavoring. And it just seemed to me like, you know, I mean, I understand it turned out that, you know, the base for Elizabeth Warren is different than the base for Bernie Sanders and all of that kind of stuff. And and that's fine. But they basically just left Biden and a couple of, you know, unknown loser types alone with the 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 sort of moderate Democrat well, field. Well, Do you have a theory about why? Well, Mayor Pete tacked into that lane pretty effectively. Um, At, towards the end, right? No, I mean, no, he, I mean, he did a good job of branding himself as a moderate when he really isn't an especially moderate guy. So, I mean, I think he was... I think. Oh, you mean just sort of tonally? Tonally, yeah. And, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and so he won a lot of those voters. Um, I, 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 will put it, I will put it this way. Um, I think the only person who made an actual strategic mistake there was um, Kamala Harris. You could say that Cory Booker did, but he was in Kamala's sh- shadow from the t- day one, so he had to get out from behind her shadow. Um, 50% of the Iowa caucus attendees are self-avowed socialists most of the time. Um, the two chunks of in, in Iowa and New Hampshire, I mean, I think most people felt Bernie was going to do well in Nevada, um, I don't think they expect him to do as well as he did, but um, you know, Iowa and New Hampshire are lily white states. Their Democratic primary electorates are extremely white, 
and uh, white Democrats, especially those who show up to caucus in, you know, weather that's pretty much known uniformly for killing rock stars and plane crashes, uh, are pretty hard charging left wingers. And, you know, those folks show up and I think there was a sense that they could be one. Uh, once Harris, I, Cory Booker went to, you know, Booker went to the left because I think he was trying to get outside of Harris's shadow and assumed that she would run on the, yeah, I'm tough. It's a tough job. You need somebody tough to take on Donald Trump and position herself more as a centrist, but with California credentials. That's what she should have done. And that's the way she rolled her campaign out. And then they panicked and pivoted back the other direction. And I think that kind of screwed things up because the assumption was, okay, Harris will squat on Biden. Biden will eat some of the older voters. That lane is full. Let's all position ourselves over here. Then Harris just goes, ah, psych, I'm coming over this way. To the left, I'm making hand gestures that the listeners can't say. But when she migrated to the left, Pete then moved into the center, but it wasn't enough. And Biden then actually just kind of grew up a little bit as a default, more centrist candidate. Um, all right. So I, there are lots of other things we could talk about. Sure. You're, 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 you're easy on the ears. <laughs> um, uh, eyes are a completely different oh, it's a disaster. question. Um, but uh, one of the things that I think people can draw their own conclusions about. Uh, and in fairness, this was a fait accompli in many ways for you that you had no choice in. But you're the owner of, I believe, six cats? I, I, am, I am the owner of a large number of cats, uh, yes. Um, yes. And, uh, yeah, yeah, that. and they're very, very froofy, exotic cats, yes. at least a large number. Of them. Yeah, they're Persian cats. Himalayan and Persian cats. Yeah, that's right. Uh, my my the woman who would have been my mother in law um, died, and uh, she had four cats. And they, uh, uh, my would be father in law, uh, was not able to take care of them. So we slowly accreted them and added them to our existing two. And that's how we wound up with uh, as many as we have. And when this all process started, you weren't married yet, if I recall. That's correct. Right? That's correct. Yeah, okay. yeah. So I remember you referring to my girlfriend. Um, and and we're, we're actually still not. We had to delay the wedding because of Corona. But um, yeah, it's common law marriage. Yeah. Kind of thing going on. yeah okay. So um, I, I bring this all up as prelude to the fact that one of the things that your friends know about you is that you're 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 truly confident in your masculinity. That you <laughs> own these cats without apology, mm-hmm. and when people are giving you a hard time about having all of these cats, you respond by getting a poodle. Uh, yeah, uh, which is an interesting play, right? I mean, that is that is that is really just sort of like you think I'm you you think I have a less than traditionally masculine approach to pets. Hold, hold my beer. Yeah, hold my beer. <laughs> right. So we got we got a standard poodle uh, from um, a breeder in Arkansas, a great breeder called Smith Poodles. Check them out. Um, Truman uh, is our dog. I I was put it this way. I, I know. I know who runs the household, and that's why our dog is named after a Missouri Democrat, even though I am a Kansas Republican. Um, I, in, in a moment of weakness brought about largely because of sleep deprivation, thanks to uh, late autumn campaign work, I, I folded and, and relented on getting Truman. Uh, he's, a, he's a red standard poodle. He's wonderful. Uh, the poodle is much maligned in popular culture, and in my view, unfairly so. I, I, to a large extent, I agree, but I'll let you make the case. Since sure. You know. Well, so the Poodle is one of the original dog breeds, uh, and they were bred um, 
as as gun dogs. They're one of the first gun dogs outside of the U.S. They're they're shown as sporting group dogs uh, because they're natural retrievers. Um, uh, the French refer to them as caniche, which is a, a portmanteau that means basically duck dog. Um, and the goofy haircuts for which they're notorious are actually stylized versions of cutting their hair to warm their internal organs and joints while going into cold water to retrieve down birds. Uh, so they are hunting dogs. Um, they're, they're extremely intelligent. They're not quite as, as intelligent as border collies, but I think they're the only breed that works both as gun dogs, as seeing eye dogs, as companions, etc. And the standard poodle gets up, uh, he will probably max out his weight north of 60 pounds and, um, yeah, despite the goofy name and their general association with uh, femininity, they're actually really uh, pretty hardy, robust animals. Um, um, yeah, I, I I will confess I'm not a lover of the look mm. of poodles, but that's mostly has to do with a lot of the grooming, right? Um, um, as you suggest, and one of the things people don't know about poodles is they don't have fur; they have hair. That's right. They don't shit, and which has led to. Um, something that my wife and I talk about often, um, a really out of control level of doodle proliferation in our society. The, the doodle, I, I'm not going to knock the doodle. It's an affable breed, uh, or the various sub doodles. Um, but what people don't understand is every doodle is 75% poodle, right? So you mix a poodle with a golden retriever or whatever, and then you mix that with another poodle you're essentially dumbing down the poodle and adding and switching a letter around so that men feel confident walking them around. But the truth is, is they're, they're overwhelmingly poodle. And in my view, like why settle for the Pepsi one version of something when you can have the real deal? Yeah. Although I will say aesthetically, like a Bernie doodle is a damn cute. Oh, thing. they're great. I mean, they're great. Yeah. One of Truman's good friends at, at puppy daycare is a, is a Bernie doodle. Um, so one of the things I wanted to tell you about, um, because I don't know if you know this about me, but I, 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 like, I like dogs. Oh, you're and a I dog person. Cats. I hadn't, yeah, yeah, I hadn't gathered. Yeah. Well, I actually have two cats and two dogs. And then, of course, my mom has three cats, a Russian blue and two Scottish foals. Mm-hmm. And Foals um, Fafoon. That's been. That's my mom's. That's your mom. Okay. Yeah, Fafoon's yeah, great. And that's a very expensive cat. Yeah. That's Extremely. I gather that Himalayans are probably expensive, too, but, the, like, it's an expensive they, cat. They are. They are. And um, my, uh, actually, a friend of mine in D.C., who had two rescue cats that, you know, these, one of them was literally found in the, in under the hood of a car as a kitten looking for warmth. And the other one was abandoned. He recently adopted, he and his wife adopted a Himalayan or a, a, a Persian cat that had been abandoned um, because they are, they are amazing. They're, they're not terribly recognizably feline because of the inbreeding, but uh, um, incest does lead to some amusing personality quirks. Um, we're going to take that quote completely out of context <laughs> and use it on social media. Um, you should check out Scout and Zoe's. Okay, I've been wanting to talk about Scout and Zoe for a while. This is one of these advertisers I can get really excited about because um, I'm dog and cat guy, and I say that without apology. And uh, Scout and Zoe is a great line of products. They got all sorts of great stuff. Um, they also... Uh, you know, my dogs, shockingly, I, you know, was surprised. They love the freeze-dried minnows. The cats like them. The dogs love them. Um, and unlike a lot of treats, you get a just a pile of them in the bag so you can be a little carefree throwing them to them. Um, it takes some getting used to. Uh, but uh, all of the ingredients lines, I mean, one of the things that's really cool about what they do is... It's sort of like they if, if you're if you were looking to get into heaven by starting a 
dog and cat treat company, um, you be hard pressed to check more boxes than what they do. They, they help, uh, part of the production line is done by people with disabilities. Part of the production line is for people who um, are getting a second chance because they you know, made some mistakes earlier in their life. And a lot of the products, not all of them, they got chicken products, they got other kind of stuff. They got oxtails, which the dogs love and make a profoundly satisfying crunching sound when they eat them. Um, but a lot of the fish products are from Asian carp, which are an invasive species in the United States. They came into our waterways in the 1990s and have been an ecological problem ever since. Um, they're notorious for leaping out of water and actually injuring boaters. But more importantly, they outcompete native species um, for all sorts of resources. Um, but uh, for all their problems is sort of, uh, you know, they are basically the Trump's caravan, but with fish. Um, they are, are causing problems for native species. They're causing problems in our waterways and all sorts of things. But they're actually profoundly nutritious, like a lot of fish. Um, and so they're good for both cats and dogs. Um, they're full of omega-3. They're a good source of protein and fatty acids. Um, uh, and because they're top feeders, they're not going to have a lot of mercury in them. Uh, anyway, my point is everything about Scout and Zoe's is done to be environmentally, socially responsible, um, not preachy in some sort of social justice way, just trying to do good by everybody and most importantly by your fur creatures. And, um, and as part of the, their sort of broader philosophy about doing right by animals, uh, they raised the issue that Zoe, and who's not related to the Zoe in the name um, Scout and Zoe's, uh, but Zoe in the promo code gets a lot more credit than, than Pippa because the promo code is often Dingo. And that was the old promo code for the last round of ads from Scout and Zoe's. This time around, it's Pippa. So if you want to vote for your feet, vote with your feet or vote with your mouse or your mouse pad or whatever for Pippa and give her her dude, do go to scoutandzoe's.com and use promo code PIPPA. Um, we thank Scout and Zoe's for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant, and we thank them for making uh, nummy dog treats and cat treats. All right, so I should have shouldn't have waited to the very end, to, you know, to, to cover the important stuff right. about the um, um, about poodles and Scout and Zoe's and whatnot, but I figured I'd want to get it in there. Um, and we could probably argue a good deal more about about some of the the Trump stuff, but. You know, I am but a servant. I'm a, I'm a river that delivers your views to the people. And um, we need not argue about all of that right now. Um, is there anything else that we really must get out there? I'm trying to think. Can we make fun of Mike Gallagher? Sure. Happy to. Um, new father, Mike Gallagher, by the way. Oh, did he have yeah, his, his, yeah. his kid? Uh, little Grace Gallagher has been has been born. And uh, my my mother is a knitter and knits baby sweaters. So uh, there is a green and white baby sweater en route to Green Bay, Wisconsin, as we speak. It may have arrived already. Where do you come down? So Gallagher, whose listeners may recall, is um, uh, my partner in crime on the Half-Baked Ideas podcast. Yeah, half of which um, both of you steal from me, for what it's worth. It's not entirely possible. <laughs> yeah. um, and, uh, um, but... Where do you come down since you actually know this American history stuff? I'm so bad on 19th century American history. Mm. Um, Gallagher has this, I don't, what, what is it, irredentist? Is that the right word? 
thing about some piece of Michigan that really belongs to Wisconsin? I, I think it's the Upper Peninsula, isn't it? That he wants to is that he what wants it is? to seize the UP, which I mean, it's sort of like the Russians taking Crimea. It's like you're taking the poorest part that's the least developed, and, and uh, but I guess it would it would make Wisconsin redder because they tend to be Republican voters up there. But I don't know, maybe. But it would, but it would make Michigan bluer, and aren't there more voters in Michigan? That's true. That's true. But he's, I mean, he's he's a total homer. Like, try talking to him about the the downsides of La Follette and the Wisconsin plan, and he just the eyes glaze over. I mean, the guy the guy roots for everything Wisconsin. It's all cheese, beer, and Packers. He's pro La Follette, really. Uh, La Follette's problematic. Very problematic. I try to tell him this, but you think he listens to me? He's a politician. They don't listen to anybody. Other, other, other than the voters. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Uh, thank you for putting up with me. It's been a long day for everybody. And I know you're just, I mean, it's like you're typing a screenplay in Barton Fink. Oh, yeah. No, so, I, I, uh, look, I kept the shirt on. That's all you can ask for. It's hot. Um, and, and, and I did ask at the beginning of the podcast, yeah. right before we started taping. So anyway, uh, Luke Thompson, thanks so much for joining us. I hope we'll have you back again soon. Happy to be here. Okay, so uh, Lucas has left the podcast, and um, want to thank him for coming on. Uh, I don't, as I said, I don't always agree with him on everything. Um, I'm much less sanguine about the future of the GOP um, for reasons that you know he alluded to a little bit, uh, but we can talk about all that stuff another time. And um, he's always good to have around to check on stuff and. He, he, you should definitely, I should have mentioned this earlier. You should definitely listen to his podcast, which he does with Jay Cost on the constitution called constitutionally speaking. It's put out by, uh, you know, my, my friends and former colleagues at national review. And if you want deep dives on constitutional nerdery, uh, that is the place for you. And, um, but just make sure you leave time for the dispatch and the remnant and all of that. So anyway, thanks again to Lucas. Thanks again to Scout and Zoe's. And thanks again, most of all, to you guys for helping keep this thing chugging along. We're making real progress, and it's all it's all because of you guys. Your support is hugely important to us. So thank you, and I'll see you next time. Uh, this, is, this isn't a visual medium, Jonah. You're not seeing anyone now. Two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.